0: Hello everybody and welcome to episode 35 of State of the Game, the golf podcast that talks about stuff that matters. I'm Rod Morrie and on this episode we're going to chat to our second author in a row, but this writer has produced a book very different from those of our last guest. Kurt Sampson will be chatting with Professor Mark Brody shortly about his new book, Every Shot Counts. Before that, though, let me bring in my co-host, as always, from the US, blogger, author, course architect, critic, Jeff Shackleford. Good to talk again, Shack. Shack, are you a numbers guy? This could be uh, right up your alley today if you're a numbers guy.
1: You know, I I was when I played college golf. I tried to do my own stats, and then I've sort of uh, gotten away from, from that, and other than ShotLink, viewed a lot of it as sort of overwhelming, but... Now that I've gotten into trackman and i've I've read um, what mark Brody's been doing and and uh, I'm now totally on board
0: <laughs> and, and with that sort of a golf OCD thing that you've told me you've had in the past. That's probably might not be such a good thing, but it'll well, be. Well,
1: it's, it's thankfully it's it's not my game now. Yes. But I'm, I'm just on board for other people being interested in it.
0: <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, good to have you aboard, Shaq And from Melbourne, where he's recently finished a short stint caddying for one of Australia's brightest young prospects in the Wingens game, Sue O. Oh. It's a welcome to course architect, former touring professional, Mike Clayton. Clayton's a couple of good rounds in those two tournaments where you lug the bag for young Sue. She's quite a player, isn't she?
2: She was good. She made a mess the last day at Victoria where she was the group ahead of Webb, and then she was fourth in the Vic Open, which was decent. She, she and Minji, played, Minji Lee played really well, I thought. She played with Laura Davies for three days. and
0: That'd be a learning experience.
2: Uh, yeah, it was interesting out Laura. Yeah, she's Laura. Um, she could be on the men's tour, Laura. She'd fit in right perfectly there.
0: She's amazing. I remember watching her at Concord. She stepped on the second tee, dropped the ball on the ground, puffed up a bit of grass, pulled out a two-iron, and hit a shot like I've never seen yeah. anybody hit before. She's just uh, extraordinary. Interesting there, Clates, that, uh, that you said she had a poor round. Was it not the two of you? Did you, the two of you have a great round no, and she had not- a bad round? Is that the...? It
2: was a hard day, and I, um, she buried the first, and the second hole was a different win, and the fairway was quite narrow because she could reach the bunk on the left the first three days, but she couldn't the last day, so it was effectively wider. And I should have said, you've got much more room here, but she pushed down the right in the rough and made a bogey. And then third hole, she had a really quick putt across the green. I knew it was quick, but you never know whether to say that because as soon as you say that, they leave it six feet short. So she whacked that eight feet past and missed it. and She just kind of just kept doing little things. Sort of the, the sort of mistake a 17-year-old makes when she's got a chance to finish in the top 10 in the LPGA event and just, you know, just – and it was a hard day. It was windy and the greens were hard but she shot, a, you know, 66, 69, 66 in the middle, which was terrific. She's a fantastic player and a great kid, a really nice kid to. It was.
0: Uh, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, and no doubt she benefited from your experience too, I would think. Sure about that, but anyway. <laughs> having, you, having you on the bag, well, of course, all of those things that you've talked about there and the mistakes that she made are exactly the sort of thing that Mark Brody could break down for us and tell us exactly where she's going both right and wrong. Young Sue, he's a professor, but he's also a low-handicap golfer, the perfect combination to study the millions of golf shots that the PGA two has tracked over the last decade or so through Shotlink. And of course, he's trying to make some sort of sense of a game that most of us know really makes no sense at all. It's a warm welcome to Mark Brody. Mark, thanks for taking some time to chat to us today. Thanks
3: so much for having me. I appreciate it.
0: No, not at all. It's going to be uh, really interesting to talk to you today, Mark. The, the book, Every Shot Counts, it is the culmination of, as I said, about a decade or so of, uh, of data gathering from Shotlink. But it didn't just start with the PGA Tour. This is something you started on with amateur golfers originally. What's the germ of the idea that has ended up in this book?
3: Well, I wanted to kind of combine my professional or academic interests in uh, finance and applied math with my, you know, personal passion, which is playing golf. And there's a few questions that uh, I had um, no idea the answer to, but I figured if I had the data, I, I knew how to do the analysis. So what I wanted to figure out is the 10 strokes that separate a golfer who shoots 90 from a golfer who shoots 80, where do those 10 strokes come from? Or between an 80 golfer and a PGA Tour player, it's clear that the PGA Tour pro hits every type of shot better. But I didn't know where more of the shots came from compared to to others. And even if I, you know, uh, a question like if I could hit the ball 20 yards further, how much would my score go down? So those were the questions that I wanted to answer that I I didn't know how to answer, but I figured if I could get the uh, I could get the data, then I could. Uh, apply the same kind of uh, analysis that I use in my day job.
0: Okay, and so that's all right to have that as an idea. How does one go about How do you collect data of golf shots for 80 and 90 shooters? That's daunting in itself, isn't it?
3: Well, that was the hardest part to start. The first thing I did was try to scour the internet for anybody else who had done this, and I couldn't find anything. So the reason it took me so long to, to start off was... Designing a program to collect amateur data, and this was even back before Google Earth. Even though now I use Google Earth, but the the idea is when you play around and you have a uh, each of the holes mapped out, you um, uh, write in a piece of paper a little X, uh, which you know is a map of the hole. You write an X where your shot is, and then after the round, you can click in a computer, and it will record where the shot started, where it ended, whether it was in the fairway rough, and how far it was to the hole. And that, you know, turned out to be like a personal shot link system. At the same time I was developing this program called Golf Metrics to record amateur data, unbeknownst to me at the time, the PGA Tour was developing their shot link system to record PGA Tour data. And um, a couple years later, they gave me access to to their data, and then I... I now slurp their data into the golf metric system to to analyze, but it's the same idea. You can understand the game better if you have more detailed information about where golfers hit their shots.
0: Well, a couple of things that are interesting out of just the simple things you've said there. For all the technology and the advances and a lot of the stuff we talk about on this po- podcast all the time, the golf ball and golf clubs and all those sorts of things, in fact, it's this collection of data, particularly what the PGA Tour has been able to do and the way you've been able to interpret it, that might actually change the game more for golfers at every level than any of those other physical things, isn't it? Because we've never had the ability to break the game down the way you have done in this book.
3: Yeah, I think most of what, you know, you know, people's uh, you know, opinions come from observer, you know, observation which is necessarily limited to uh, much smaller than what's what's going on. So if you are at a golf tournament and you watch the incredible shots the PGA Tour pros play, you don't you only see a fraction of what's going on in the tournament. And so When the PGA Tour collects every shot, then I can tell how each golfer putts compared to the entire field that day. And that is really essential for understanding uh, the performance and what contributes to one golfer winning and another golfer coming in 10th or somebody else missing the cut.
0: And of course, that the key stat is in relation to others. And, Clates, so I think you've always said this. Whenever we've talked about stats, you'll say things like, "You know, Jeff Ogilvy knows at the end of the year that he's 135th in putting. It doesn't matter whether he's having 1.2 putts per green in regulation or three putts per green. In, the key is that there's 134 blokes doing it better, isn't it? So it's it's not the numbers, Clates. It's the in relation to others.
3: Uh, ah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Sorry. Go ahead.
0: I might actually I might get your thought on that Mark because to me that was the key to the book because we've always had the numbers haven't we you know if you're having 3 putts per green then obviously that's poor but that actually doesn't tell you anything does it in the scheme of golf explain that notion of you know really it's about in relation to the field and there's one round you talk about with Tiger Woods where he had I think 27 putts said it was one of the worst putting rounds of his life. How, how can that
4: be? Most people, if you say 27 putts, they'll, they'll think that was a good round. And if the leader on the PGA Tour for a year is at 28 or so putts, and if the average on the PGA Tour is 29 putts, 27 seems like a good putting round. But Tiger Woods knew better, and the reason he knew better was he didn't sink a putt or maybe only one putt outside of six feet. So it's not just how many putts you take. It's the distance that you start from. And that round, Tiger Woods was starting very close to the hole. So if you count putts, one putt from two feet, you're not gaining or losing strokes on the field. A one putt from 30 feet, you are gaining on the field. And one putt from 60 feet is even better. So even though all three count as one putt, if you're just counting putts, uh, one or two are much better performances than, than the other. Mm-hmm. And what strokes gain putting does primarily, is it takes into account the the, dif- the distance of the putt or the, the difficulty of each putt. Uh,
0: it, the book starts, Mark, and I want to ask Clates about this. The book starts with a, a statement that I, I guess is probably deliberately confronting. I think it's the first chapter is called, putting is overrated. Clates, you've been playing this game for most of your life and at a pretty high level. If someone says to you, putting is overrated as a touring professional, does that make sense to you or do you sort of think this guy doesn't know what he's talking about? I mean, putting's always been held up as the business end of the game, isn't it? If you can putt, you can contend whether you can hit it well or not.
2: No, that, make, that does make sense to me. I always thought that because I, I always felt when I played well and did decently in tournaments, it was because I played well because I had the ball well. But go, I would go back to Mac O'Grady Grady told me years ago. He said, if you want to win a tournament, so the Zipper's the, the, the been playing well, and Sue and I were talking about this a lot in the last couple of weeks because people are all over her about her putting. That the Zipper's been putting well and well playing well in a tournament and winning tournaments. I think Mac told me that to win tournaments, or when Tom Watson was winning regularly on the PGA Tour, he would make 100 feet of putts a day. One putt greens would, would add up to 100 feet, 400 feet a week, that's what, and that's what you need to make to win. So I guess my question to Mark was, is that valid? You know, to win on the PGA Tour, do you need to make 100 feet of putts a day?
4: Uh, there's different ways to win. And if you saw the, uh, the Northern Trust Open or some of the other recent tournaments, you can win when you're just putting uh, tour average. If you saw Jack, Zach Johnson when he won the Hyundai, the first tournament in uh, 2014, he won even though he was putting average um, – with the field. So there's different ways to win and there's no doubt that most winners putt better than they typically do because when they win they're playing better than than they typically are. But the the golfers that contend day in and day out are, you know, not necessarily the best putters in in the world. So Rory McIlroy, Vijay Singh, Ernie Ells, Sergio Garcia, Adam Scott, They're some of the best players in the world for the last ten years, but they're not the best putters in the world.
0: And that it it gets interesting. One of the things you you point out in the book, Mark, and you'll probably be interested in this, Clayton, there's a bunch of different ways to be a good player, isn't there? For a long time when Tiger Woods dominated, he was the best mid to long iron player uh, in the game as a ball striker and combined with a great short game and great putting, he's better than everybody else at just about everything. But Steve Stricker, for example, uh, his strength is his, his wedge game, as we all know, but, but combined with his putting, he doesn't need to strike as well. There's different ways to be a top 10 in the world player, isn't there?
4: Oh, absolutely, yeah. yep. Is that for me or
0: for For you, Mark, uh, yeah, Mike? because you, yeah. Cause you explore that in the game, in the book, and it's yeah. interesting to sort of think about.
4: Yeah, so one, one of the things, if you look at the last 10 years or so, in order to be in the top 10 in the world, you need to gain about, one and a quarter strokes per round on the field. And that leads to this list of golfers that you would say are household names, Tiger Woods, Jim Furyk, Luke Donald, all the way down to Zach Johnson. So if you can play one and a quarter strokes per round better than the field, you will be in this elite category of the top ten players in the world for the decade. And there's different ways to do that. So some golfers, you know, what, whatever combination of putting, short game, approach shots, iron shots, and driving gets you to one and a quarter shots uh, per round gaining on the field is is a way to be one of the best golfers in the world.
0: Hmm. Is that does that sync with you, Kleins? Would you think intrinsically because of course we never had the numbers to back it up but would you think there's different ways to be a top I suppose Seve by is a very different golfer to Nick Faldo wasn't he they're both top 10 players in the world the evidence is right there isn't it
2: yeah I mean Seve was the best player because he hit the best shots I mean he was erratic but he hit the most incredible shots and Faldo was great because he just kept doing the same shot over and over
1: mm-hmm.
2: so there are different ways I mean Greg was somewhere in between I suppose mm-hmm. but I remember I wrote an article about Tom once. Weiss- I spoke to him in Scotland one year and I asked him who the best putter he ever saw was, and he said, Well, Jack Nicholas was, of course. It looked at me like I was, no, well, he didn't look at me like I was stupid, but it was like, Well, Jack Nicholas was. He said, What about Ben Crenshaw or Bob Charles? He said, Well, they had to be. He said, But did you ever see a putt Nicholas Smith said he had to make? Which was a, you know, you know I guess that's the intangible of the statistics mm-hmm. is you can, you, know, you can make a lot of putts, but when it comes down to the eight footer of the last all the money, can you make that putt? And of course, mm-hmm. what he was saying was,
4: Nicholas always made that putt.
0: And of course, yeah Sorry, guy, Mike.
4: But it, but it sounds like he was also saying that uh, you know Ben Crenshaw was a great putter, but he didn't win nearly as many tournaments as Jack Nicklaus did. That Ben Crenshaw had to be a great putter to win tournaments, given the rest of his game, where Jack Nicklaus didn't have to be, you know, the top of the world putter to to win all the tournaments that he did.
0: Well, and didn't Jack? tell Rory or Say and Rory agree with, you know, you don't need a short game to win. I'm pretty sure I heard Jack back that up again next week. I remember Rory quoted it a couple of years ago that, you know, if you hit the ball well enough, you don't need a great short game to win golf tournaments. And it would seem that's backed up, Mark. If you do hit it well enough, you can get away with not being a great wedge player or a great chipper or putter if you Absolutely. don't have to do that very often. <laughs> so.
4: that's, that's exactly right. Yeah. And, um, you know, no... No golfer, except possibly Tiger Woods, is great at every single part of the game, and uh, you know, Roy McElroy is an example of somebody that, at the moment, doesn't have a great short game. He's not a great putter, but imagine how good he could be if he improves on those as well.
0: Mm, well, that shot he hit into the 18th uh, the other day was something to behold, wasn't it? The was five wood from 245 odd yards it was uh, was quite extraordinary, and I think the commentator said at the time, Clayton. It's true, isn't it? I think you've said. Ogilvy might have commented on this. There are only a handful of players who could have hit that particular shot. That's a particularly special gift of the likes of Rory and Tiger, and perhaps Ernie, Adam Scott. Sometimes to hit the really amazing golf shot. Not all pros can hit the really amazing golf shot, can they?
2: No, no. I mean, I mean, there were very. I mean, I time in Europe, there were very few guys, if any, who could hit those one and two irons like Seve could. I mean, wow. Mm. Yeah, you just didn't have that shot.
0: Yep, exactly. And the and the is then to actually have a go at it <laughs> at a time when it, uh, when it really counts. The the interesting thing about the statistics, Mark, I think we sort of touched on this earlier, I was trying to touch on this earlier, is this notion that you compare like to like, and that's what we've not been able to do before. Explain the idea of strokes gain putting. I think you touched on it with the idea of a 2-foot putt and a 30-foot putt. Both count as one, but they're different, aren't they? Just tease some of that out for us. Help us to understand the strokes gain putting, because I think most golfers still don't get it, and I'd put myself in that category too.
4: Sure, and I think it's not, not too hard, so let me give it a shot here. The, um, the PGA Tour average from about 30 or 33 feet is two. So they will one-putt as often as they three-putt, and most of the time they'll two-putt. So you can think of if you're just having a putting contest, the par on the hole for the PGA Tour starting from 30 feet would be two shots or two putts. So if you yeah. one putt, you're gaining a stroke on the field. If you two putt, you're neither gaining nor losing. And if you three putt, you lose a stroke. Mm-hmm. So a one putt from 30 feet gains gains a stroke on the field. So that, I hope, makes sense. What do you think?
0: Oh, it does make sense, when you. Yeah. but it can be sort of hard to figure out in your own mind. But yes, that exactly makes sense. And so that becomes important, doesn't it? Because that gives you very much a relative to the field. That's why a 30-foot putt, not all 30-foot putts are the same either, are they, or equal?
4: Oh, they're, they're not all equal, and you could um, look at 30-foot uphill and 30-foot downhill putts, 30-foot side hill putts, but the most important factor in the difficulty of a putt is the putt distance. Mm-hmm. So if you go back to a two-foot putt, the PGA Tour average is just very slightly over one. So if you one putt from two feet, you're not gaining or losing. Mm-hmm. If you two putt you're going to be losing a stroke if you three putt from two feet you're going to be losing two strokes and possibly your so mind. <laughs> so that so that makes sense too i hope did, did i lose you there
0: no no not at all if, if a if a touring pro three putts from two feet mark i'm suspecting you're losing more than a stroke on the field possibly a caddy a wife uh, a job <laughs> <laughs> i'd be losing just about it although in fairness it, uh, that's
4: right if uh,
1: yeah you're about bubba watson's caddy you're going to get a, a yelling
0: yeah most uh, most definitely jeff i think you've got something for mark
1: Well, I've got, yeah, I don't even know where to begin. I have a lot of questions. But uh, I I think the first thing, kind of stepping back in talking about the book and and what you've done, I mean, one of the things I've seen already just at the end of the last year in listening to players talk is how much more players are using stats to analyze their game and how much instructors are using it to, to be able to make their case to players as to what they have to work on um the publisher of the book who's a, who's done a lot of great golf books thinks this is the most important book he's he's done is this because he believes and and your research tells you that all of taking this statistical information is going to make players practice better or um is there something else that we're going to see from all this that we're not quite uh understanding yet Well, I I hope that it helps uh, fans, golf fans,
4: understand the game better and understand where these good performances come from or where a golfer might come up short. And then at an individual level, I think it does identify your strengths and weaknesses much more precisely. So it does help in planning a practice uh, regimen and it helps coaches know what to work on with their players.
1: Um, Because it... One of the things that I've seen, I just wrote a story on TrackMan, um, is that it, it's actually simplifying things, and it's not as technical as people uh, believe. Do you think that is, I mean, is that sort of your uh, goal with the book and, and with your message of trying to get people to not be scared by, by statistical analysis, but to actually uh, use it to their advantage?
4: Absolutely. I think that, as I mentioned earlier, fairways, greens, and putts are anywhere from uh, uninformative to to misleading. And the strokes gain method, I think, is very simple. If you tell me that somebody gains uh, a stroke per round on the field in their driving, I don't have to tell you how it was calculated. It It's understandable, just a, a statement by itself. So I think it mm-hmm. helps to to clarify and make uh, performance measurement in golf simpler.
1: And we're going to start seeing strokes gained branch out to categories beyond putting, is that correct? Yeah,
4: the PGA Tour, when they rolled out strokes gained putting in 2011, they did this uh, grammatically challenged uh, uh, (laughs) writing of the words strokes gained dash or strokes gained slash putting, but they had in in their mind that it would be followed up with other strokes gained uh, categories. Mm. And uh, the current plan is to follow up with strokes gained T to green. And what I do in the book is I break it down into, into four categories and then more subcategories. But the four main categories are strokes gained driving, uh, strokes gained for approach shots, strokes gained for short game shots, and then strokes gained for putting. Hmm.
1: Uh- and I think there—I believe I read that you—you, you, uh, there's been a contraction in the the difference between uh, leading scores and cutline scores in the last decade or so. Did I read that in your book? Sorry, I've been reading a lot that lately. Might,
4: that might have been somewhere else. <laughs> that might—that okay. that might have been somewhere else. I didn't have that in the book, but it uh, it rings true.
1: Well, I just—we're always fascinated on this show. We're always talking about technology and the role it plays, and how how players are. It seems like there's less differential between uh, players of, of that are really really good versus great, and we're always, of course, blaming technology. But I also just wonder if we're going to see fields come together even more as players take advantage of some of this information and and i also wonder if players who who are not on the pga tour on other tours are going to be at a disadvantage potentially if they don't have some of this information
4: well i think it's it's fun to speculate and a decade or 15 years ago before uh Tiger Woods was coming onto the scene. They said there'd never never be another Jack Nicklaus because he separated himself so much from the field. They said players are getting so good, and that was you know in the in the 1980s. They said there would never be another Jack Nicklaus, and then Tiger Woods comes along, and he separates himself from the field more so than Jack Nicklaus did. But I don't think that's uh, there's a contradiction to say that there's just many many more golfers on tour these days that could win any given week. Um, so it may be hard to find the next Tiger Woods but there's certainly uh, you know 100 plus guys that could win any any week that have the game to win any week or even any major tournament.
0: Mark, you actually touch on the technology thing in the book. There's a there's a small section there where you talk about, you know, that there are people who campaign for rolling back the ball and there's three hands up here. I think all of us at some point have said that that would be a good idea. Of course, nothing's quite that simple. What's your take on that because according to your statistics, if we rolled back the ball, which is a pretty simple statement, doesn't doesn't really cover what would be involved in doing that, yeah. certain players would be penalized more than others, wouldn't they, at a professional level, at the PGA Tour level?
4: Right. So one of the things that uh, you can tell when you analyze the data is if uh, PGA Tour pros hit it 20 yards longer, they're going to gain about three quarters of a stroke per round. But when you look at Amateur golfers, 80 golfers, 90 golfers, they're going to lose maybe a stroke and a half. And weekend golfers maybe lose two or three strokes if the ball goes 20 yards shorter. So I'm not... Coming down, what should or shouldn't be done, but the fact is that if the only thing that happens is the ball is is rolled back on on the driver, it's going to affect amateurs more than
0: it affects pros. Oh, come on, get on board, Mark. Bifurcation—that's the word you're looking for. We need two <laughs> sets of rules. Get off the fence. It's the only possible solution. Uh,
4: there's there's been a lot of talk about that, and some some people will say the rules are already bifurcated.
0: Well, of course, yeah. well of course they are. I mean, you, you can't go and buy Dustin Johnson's driver, and anybody who thinks you can. Is kidding themselves, um, frankly. Well, but the,
4: so, the groove rule is a little bit mm-hmm. different, and they allow they allow uh, amateurs to use uh, lasers and other yardage distance devices. So I think it would be nice on the PGA Tour if they allowed them to use lasers or distance oh. devices, if it would speed things up.
0: Kleitz, are you still with us? If yep. keyword if. <laughs> what's what's your take there, Clates? You've played professional golf. Do we need lasers?
2: Well, I, I don't. I mean, having caddy the last two weeks, I don't think you can caddy without a yardage book. I, I mean, I mean, a lasers an extra thing, but you certainly could never go out there without a yardage book. So you you, you would finish up with both things going on,
0: and that's I mean, going to add to the time. That's what yeah. that, the argument for a lot of people is that you, players aren't going to give up a yardage book. So exactly, you're now going to have a laser and a yardage book and more conversation. At the end of the day, yeah. you have you know you're still got to try and pick a club. To hit it, yeah, you came off the fence on the wrong side there, Mark. (laughs) Bifurcation—that's the side you need to get on. Then you'll be (laughs) welcome with open arms on the show. Uh, I'm intrigued, Mark. You you mentioned in the book—you mentioned there, you know—you can work out what being the best driver is worth, and how—and that 20 yards is worth it. How would you know? How can you tell me who who is? The best driver on the tour not for hitting fairways or hitting it straight or hitting it the longest but who gains the most out of their driving compared to the field how do you calculate that i can see with putts it's straightforward but how do you do that with driving and distances
4: so one of the problems with um just counting fairways if you pop a drive up and it goes 100 yards and lands in the fairway, or if you hit it 300 yards down the middle of the fairway, they both count as a fairway hit. Mm -hmm. What Strokes Gain Driving recognizes is that longer drives are better than shorter drives, and straighter drives are better than crooked drives. So if you hit it 300 yards in the fairway, it's generally better than 300 yards in the rough, and that's better than 300 yards behind a tree, and that's better than 300 yards in the water. So all-strokes gain does is it looks at the fractional advantages that you gain from hitting it longer and the fractional advantages that you gain from hitting it straighter, and it just adds those things up over all the drives a player hits in the round, and it compares it to all the drives the field hits in a round. And so when you when you do that, you find out that, you know, lo and behold, somebody like Bubba Watson is one of the best drivers in the world,
0: hmm. Okay because it, it well, it's uh, uh, Clyde, so how would uh, what sort of questions would you ask mark as a player i mean I know that you. You've you said,
1: sound stumped, Rod. I thought that was a, a wonderful explanation.
0: No, it was it was a terrific explanation. I was actually trying to think of my next question, uh, whilst Mark was finishing his answer. The next one to so that one, and what I wanted to know, Clates, as a touring pro and all that sort of stuff. We've talked about stats before. and You say it's great the stats that the players get now. What sort of information would you be looking for back in your playing days if this sort of stuff was available? And what would you ask Mark? Because I think Mark's worked with a couple of tour players, have you not, Mark, Jason Day, or their coaches in particular?
4: Yeah, more of their coaches, but uh, quite, quite a number at this point.
0: Mm. So what, what would you want to know, Clates? What, is it, I mean, what are the things that Mark is saying or that might be in the book that you think instinctively don't marry with what we've always thought about golf and how scores are made and how players separate themselves?
2: I think the most important thing is how you're doing compared to the other players. I mm-hmm. mean, you know what you're doing yourself. It's like, how do I compare? Uh, am I really a bad putter or a good putter? And How do I do compared with the other players is mm-hmm. really the thing that it it opens up.
0: And the answers to those questions often surprise the players, don't they, Mark? You you relate a story in the book where Justin Rose told his coach, Sean Foley he thought that he wasn't, you know, that his short game needed work. statistically, he was the best short game player in the world the year before.
4: Yeah, and a lot of people don't realize that about about Justin Rose. And I feel like a, a lot of times when you look at these stats, it can be a negative thing because golfers go out and week in and week out They lose. It's only one out of 140 or 50 players that win. So most golfers on the PGA Tour lose week after week after week. And then um, what what this allows you to do is also point out a golfer's strengths. And Sean Foley was saying that would allow Justin Rose to um, uh, approach each shot with more confidence, knowing how good he is. He was under the impression, well, of course, Luke Donald is... uh, the best short game, or maybe Steve Stricker, and it's true; those those guys have have great short games. But it was Justin Rose uh, a couple years back that was number one in in short game shots, and he didn't even realize it. He had he had no idea. And there's another example with um, Sean Foley was telling me about Tiger Woods that you know. He said Tiger Woods will look at, um, you know, his total driving stats. And uh, one of the things Strokes Gain showed that in, you know, 2012, he was in the top 10 in drivers on the tour. And so this is, you know, indirect Sean Foley saying Tiger Woods probably would have thought about his driving game differently if if he had seen the uh, Strokes Gain driving measure throughout his career.
0: Can you... Uh, Clayton, what would be the importance of that as a player I take that justin rose example or even the tiger Woods one. actually all he hears is people like us tell him what a poor driver of the golf ball he is i don't know how much he listens probably not much to us but as the player himself if someone said to you you thought you weren't particularly good at an area and they said well, actually statistically here is incontrovertible proof that not only are you good you're the best in the world at it what could that do for a player that's i'd never thought about it that way that's interesting isn't it the, the way you might then approach the game differently
2: I don't know you'd approach them differently, but they would certainly give you more confidence and say, well, I'm actually not so bad at this. Or,
0: so you know, st- standing over a crucial chip or pitch rather than thinking, you know, I've had trouble with these, do you start thinking, well, I know that I'm as good at or better than these at anybody else? And, yeah. Because at, at crucial moments, statistics don't help you, do they, Clates? Golf doesn't work like that, does it? it? That confidence is might be the X factor that's the difference between making a crucial up and down and not, or is that overstating it?
2: Yeah. I mean, h- how do you how do you measure Tom Watson's chip at Pebble Beach in 1982. I mean, you know, no statistic can tell you anything about that shot. No. It's just, you know, it's the – and I always thought the the intangible is how much the emotional stability you get from knowing what you're doing from tee to green. You're not always fighting your swing or you're not fighting, you know, poor shots or – it must have been great to play golf like Ben Hogan where you just knew that the thing was going to come out of like a – not every time, but you know, there must have been a lot of emotional stability in knowing that that machine was just going to keep working time after time. You know, the great ball strikers who just kept hitting good shots, and mm. and the and the, you know, the freedom that gave you emotionally not to get majorly stressed about what was going to happen day after day. yeah. Oh, you know, the, the thing I always struggled with was, you know, what's it going to be like tomorrow? you is know, so the swing still going to be there tomorrow? And you would lurch from field to field and lots of players played with the insecurity of um, poorer techniques, I guess.
0: But your reputation's always been one as as a particularly consistent driver, just hit fairway after fairway, always hit it well. Are you saying that from within it didn't always feel like that or? Uh,
2: no, it didn't. I mean, I know I hit it straight, but no, it didn't. You know, the, 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 I mean, there were times when obviously everyone plays well, hmm. but. I was wondering what it would be like. I mean, Torino was another example of a guy that just seemed to just every single day go out there and just rifle it with a great action and how much confidence and emotional stability that gives you. Mm.
0: Because, of course, it's hitting good
2: shots. you up to play better and, mm. you, know, you know, that's the intangible thing about golf is.
0: Because hitting good shots doesn't equal playing good golf, does it, Clates?
2: Well, no, it's just hitting the ball well. I mean, I mean there's, a, there's a major difference between hitting the ball well and playing well, mm. Mm. which is kind of, you know, used to drive the wives crazy when the, like, I, mean, I played great today and shot 75. Well, no, you didn't. You might, you might think you hit the ball well, but you played an awful round of golf. Mm. Shot 75, it was no good at all. Mm. to doing pro level, you know, it's a, playing well is getting the ball around the golf course mm. properly.
0: You sort of touch on that. Is it Ray Floyd, I think you quote in the book, Mark, talking about that? that what did he say about amateurs?
4: Yeah, he said basically that if uh, amateurs don't know how to play the game and that if he walked around with an amateur, just giving the amateur advice that – um, that that version of the amateur would win 99 times out of 100 against the the amateur playing his own game. Mm-hmm. That How you yeah. played the game, he thought, was, was that important. And one of the things, you know, I believe, I don't have the, the data for this, but uh, watching the PGA Tour pros, they not only hit every shot better, but it seems like they manage their game better, mm-hmm. they play a better strategy, they also seem to practice better, <laughs> they seem to work out better. Um, they do lots of things better that I think amateurs could uh, learn from.
0: Well, of course they don't go to work, which helps. So there's a bunch of there's a bunch of time you can devote <laughs> yeah. to the the rest of us. Kind of, it's one of the uh, just on that. Run, I'm pretty sure Ray Floyd did he not say, "Give me your swing, and I'll still beat you," because I'm a better golfer. If we both hit the ball exactly the same, I would still beat you because I'm a better golfer. About the amateur, that was the the sort of the the thing I was going to. Is it the appeal in some ways then? Uh, I suppose um, Shaq or Clayton, somebody answer this, of Phil Mickelson. Because, as you say, players manage their game. But if Phil is the guy that Faraday described as watching a drunk chasing a balloon near the edge of a cliff, is that why we love Because he tries the shots that amateurs try that don't make any sense. He tries to hook it from under the trees and he pulls it off from time to time. Shaq, what do you think about that? Is that is that the appeal, perhaps, of, of, of a very different player to Woods, isn't he?
1: Of course, yeah. It's it's uh, Although today, if you'd watched him at Doral, he was... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> pouting and he threw his ball in the lake, which I've never – he always gives it to a kid. But it was – normally he doesn't do that. But absolutely, that's the beauty of Phil. On the other hand, the thing that's really interesting about Phil and the thing that has made him a better golfer as I, I think he's gotten to be a better player as he's gotten older um, would be statistics. And I don't know, Mark, if you've talked much with Dave Pelz, uh but I, I think Dave Pels was able to go to Phil – and you know Phil has a big ego like Tiger. These there's a reason they can hit a shot with millions of people watching and and do it beautifully because they have a lot of confidence. But they're also hard people to get a message through to. And I know that Pels has gone to him with stats, and that's the one thing that's that's forced him to throttle back uh, sometimes and 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 not use driver as much, and also to work on certain parts of his game. And I think that's kind of speaks to the power of what. Mark is doing with his book and what where we're going to see stats change these, these guys in their games. Mm. That wasn't uh, really a question, Mark, but no. I'm just curious what you, what well, you think.
4: Well, uh, I've, I heard this story about you know Dave Peltz and Phil Mickelson at Augusta, and Phil, Phil Mickelson li- liking to play these high-risk flop shots, and so Dave Peltz was there with Phil Mickelson, well, try three flop shots and then try three shots with a putter, three chop three shots where you chip it kind of a low runner and we'll see which one does better. And he might be uh, in love with one shot or prefer to hit one. But then when you see the result that this type of shot is a higher percentage shot, then it's pretty hard to argue with, um, you know, the lower score that's going to result from uh, the higher percentage shot. And it could be in some cases that the flop shot is, a higher percentage shot but not not always especially around augusta
0: hmm. it sort of points to something else you mentioned in the book which i also found really interesting mark which is if you take two pros and uh, a par three and two days in a row pro one hits misses the green with one shot hits it to a foot with the other and the other pro hits it to 30 feet both times it's actually better from a scoring perspective to hit one great shot and one ordinary shot than to hit two middling shots
4: absolutely and that kind of points to the flaws in greens and regulation and proximity to the hole that you'd much rather have a tap in birdie and a shot that misses the green where uh you're only going to get up and down maybe half half the time than uh or or a little bit more than half the time Than two middling shots where you're going to have par both times so does that make sense to
0: you is that not
4: absolutely yeah of
0: course but do, okay. you were saying before you'd like to know where you were going. So if you could, if you had the option, you, you, you could hit it to thirty feet all day, every day. Yeah, th- and know what your swing is doing. So know that yeah. you can hit it to thirty feet. Or, that you, you're not as well off as the guys. I'm going to take this pin on and misses it once and hits it hits it close once. That does make sense to you from a golfing perspective as a player. Yeah,
1: okay. yeah, it makes sense.
0: Okay, fair enough. I just, just uh, it seems somewhat um, counterintuitive if you're going to hit it. The same shot all day every day and be confident about that that it doesn't necessarily mean that anyway that leave that alone so,
4: so i have one stat that i i i found in 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 the book in in doing some of this work that um i counted the average number of putts over 22 feet that a pga tour pro would sink in a four-round tournament and if you didn't read that what what is your intuition that uh how many putts over 22 feet does a PGA Tour Pro sink in four
0: rounds?
2: How many putts over 22 feet in four? Uh, five, maybe? Four or five?
0: Okay. Yep. I probably would have said four or five.
4: Yep. Jeff?
1: Yeah, same for me.
4: No, the answer is like one and a half or a little bit less. Wow. And I think, I think most people's intuition is four or five. I've even heard six or seven that most people think PGA Tour pros sink boatloads of long putts, and Mm. they really don't. That's one and a half per four rounds. That's not very many at all.
2: Which kind of goes to the thing Peter Thompson was talking about in his book, where he said, I just tried to two-putt. Peter was big on holding out. He said it's really important to hold out well, but he said outside of that, I just tried to two-putt mostly.
0: We've well, identified the critical distance, have you not, Mark? The distance that separates the good from the great.
4: So, in terms of putting, I you, you can kind of do the same thing for the for putting as I was doing for the for the whole game, trying to figure out what separates uh, average players from great players. But you can say what what distance most separates average putters from great putters, and what do you guys think? Would it be kind of four foot putts, ten foot putts?
0: I've, I've read seat. it, so I'm not answering. Clates? <laughs> Critical distance, Clates.
2: Well, look, I mean, I played with Bob Charles a lot when he, and he was great. And I, play, I remember playing with him at Kingston Heath in the 83 Open it, on perfect greens. He ran in five 20-footers for two days. He ran 10 20-footers in the hole. I mean, it was staggering. Perfect greens, great stroke. He just hold everything. But um, five feet, six, five or six feet probably.
1: Shaq? Yeah, I was gonna, I'd go a little longer, about 10 feet. Mark. Yeah, and
4: I was kind of in between you two until I looked at the numbers and found out for pros it's five feet. Then five. that's yeah. that's the most critical distance. And there's nothing really special about five feet, other than if you had to pick, you know, a one foot range, then then five footers would do it. But it really means you know three to seven feet is where the best putters on the PGA tour separate themselves from average putters. And um you can do a similar analysis for amateurs and it turns out for amateurs it's closer to four feet that separates the best amateur putters from uh from average amateur putters. So it's even a shorter distance for amateurs. And the reason I think is uh is is pretty obvious after the fact and you need two things to happen. One there it has to be a distance where you can separate yourself. So You'll have a lot of one and two footers in the round, but everybody makes those, so you can't really separate yourself. Mm. You'll have some 20, 30, 40 footers, but it's hard to separate yourself there because you're pretty much going to be two-putting. Um, so it needs to be this intermediate range where you can separate yourself and there's a lot of putts. And so that's why it's four feet for amateurs and five feet for pros. They, they not only can separate themselves, but there's a lot of them.
0: And those 40 footers you talk about, they're going to finish between three and seven feet often, aren't they? And that's where you, it's that second putter that you make pars instead of bogeys uh, quite a bit of times. The other interesting thing about that, Mark, was that you found um, pros are not that much better putters than amateurs, which I found really interesting.
4: Well, they certainly are better, but just not that much (laughs) better. So if you, um, you know, take a look, you know, between a, a pro golfer that maybe averages 29 putts around, and an amateur golfer maybe averaging, you know, 31, 32, 33, or maybe 34 putts around, the um, the difference in the number of putts is nowhere near the difference in the in the number of uh, of shots in the round. So it's, um, I said, it's a it's a huge difference uh in score caused by tee to green shots more so than mm. more so than putting
0: and of course television misleads us doesn't because all we see is pros holding putts on tv because they're the guys that are leading and that's why yeah. they're leading because they're yeah. they're holding putts clates i think you've got a question for mark
2: yeah mark um i was talking with jeff ogilvy last year and he he told me if you gave the worst putter on tour 100 putts from four feet and the best putter on tour, a hundred putts from five feet. Who made more putts? And most people, I will ask that question. Say, well, the best putter on tour from five feet makes more putts. His answer was, no. The worst putter on tour from four feet makes more putts from than the best putter on tour from five. Does that? I love it. That's you-
4: that's a great. I love it. That's a great observation. Distance is so much more important. And I've heard announcers say something like. You know, it, it's it would just be absurd to say, well, I'm uh, ranked 150th in the world on eight foot putts. Um, so, sorry, let's say I'm I'm ranked number one from eight foot putts, and I'm 150th from four foot 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 putts. Would you rather putt from eight feet than four feet? Of course not. And that's a that's an extreme example of this. That it's much better to be a foot closer to the hole than to be the best putter in the world. Uh, no, distance he's, matters he's, that much.
2: His point really was the importance of chipping. Yep. You, if you chip the ball to four feet, it's significantly much different than chipping it to five feet. because every, Absolutely. Because you, you'll make it from four feet, but once you get outside four feet, then you start the percentage of increase of missing goes, goes way up.
0: Hmm. It is a great observation, though, isn't it? Uh, how many golfers think like that, I wonder, Mark? Or uh, From from Jeff, that's a really interesting thing to have brought up, isn't it? <laughs> how yeah. many golfers think that way, I wonder? Yeah. And, and can you drive yourself mad with this stuff if you're not careful?
1: Ah. Well, that's, no, that think... was my question yeah. for Mark. Yeah. Sorry,
0: <laughs> Chuck. <laughs> sorry, mate. Well, I think it's a good – good-
1: well, I, I
4: think this stuff helps, and I'm obviously biased. But let me ask you guys a question that's somewhat related, which is, you know, if you're just off the green, and you're chipping, which is, you know, typically an uphill chip, and let's say you're, uh, you know, 40 feet away from the hole, would you rather chip it to leave it two or three feet short so you have an easy uphill putt, or would you rather chip toward the hole to try and um, try and sink it?
0: I'm just trying to hit the green, Clates. What are you trying to do?
4: Well. I'm just,
2: given that the average player holds, what, one putt from 22 feet a week, I'm not, yeah, I'm trying to chip it two feet short and putt it up the hill.
1: Shaq? Yeah, same here, just trying to get it close.
0: Don't you have your aim point chart out first, though? Are you, are you doing that or? <laughs> Me? Well, yeah, you, no, you told no. us already, you're not doing that with your own game anymore, no. which is good. No, no,
4: no, no.
0: I'm trying not to blade it, Mark. Who's on the right track?
4: Well, I I think you're better off trying to chip it to the hole and trying to hole it out because downhill putts, while they're harder than uphill putts, it's much more important to be two feet closer than it is whether you're putting uphill or downhill. So if you try and leave yourself an uphill putt and you want to leave it two feet short, that means you're going to have some five or six footers that are uphill. Mm -hmm. And I'd, I'd rather not have a five or six footer. I'd rather have a two-foot downhill putt. and um, So I think that's what the numbers show. And I was that's speaking a while back to Scott Hoke, who said you know, exactly <laughs> the same thing. He you know, couldn't understand trying to chip the to leave-yourself-an-uphill putt. He tried to get it close to the hole. Close to the
0: hole. Possible.
2: Mind <laughs> you, he missed a pretty famous guy. Yeah. yeah, I was just going to say, <laughs> wow. Uh,
1: ooh <laughs>
0: That's nasty, fellas. Was there any need to bring that up? Well, when sc- you
1: hear his name, you think of that part. It's you just do. a natural reaction.
0: And his reaction to the British Open, which didn't end into a whole yeah. lot of people there.
2: I mean, Gene Sarazen got that big hole in at one point. And what was it, eight, eight inches, Jeff? Nine and the third at some point? Yeah. Do we, do we have any theories about what a big, whether that would be good or bad for the game or apart from the fact it'd be stupid? But, <laughs> I
0: mean... <laughs> I was argued that it would
2: take the advantage away from – or take the importance away from putting. Do you have a theory on that, Mark?
0: More than a theory, Mark. You've actually studied this, have you not?
4: Yeah, I have studied and I've asked quite a quite a few people and I hear, um, you know, uh, opinions that range, you know, both both ends. So one, one uh, school of thought is if you make the hole bigger, then the good putters who are just slipping out so many of the putts will hold them. Yeah. And the bad putters that are missing by a lot, it's not going to help so much. So that, so that argues for a bigger a bigger hole helping the good putters. Um, but there's other people that say the the opposite, that a, a bigger hole would take away the advantage of the good putters. Uh, Luke Donald, when I asked him, that's what he said, it would take away his advantage. What do you guys think?
2: Well, we, played a, we played a prime last year where they had two big holes in the course of 18, and it completely took away the... My instinct which was always to be a defensive putter to, to lag the putt because you, you just hit it hard because you didn't care about the 6-footer coming back because it was easy. So, yep. so it made you much more aggressive on the long putts.
4: Yep, that's right. And and it, it really would help the, the poor putters more than the good putters. And that's that what the... Uh, yeah, it helps the poor putters much more than the good putters. So, <laughs> Jeff, you see, seem surprised. This is my, my yeah. intuition for it, which is, you know, if... It works for amateurs as well, but think about pros. They they one-putt a bunch of times, they two-putt a bunch of times, and they rarely three-putt. So where do they have room to improve? Mm. It's mainly a couple of those two-putts will turn into one-putts. Whereas amateur golfers with a bigger hole, their three-putts will turn into two-putts for sure and maybe a one-putt and many more of their two-putts will turn into one-putts. They just have so much more room to improve that they will have their score lowered with a, uh, with a bigger hole much more than uh, pros or good putters. So it's, it's ab- absolutely clear when you go through the numbers that a, that a bigger hole will uh, even things out as far as putting goes. And a, another way to see that is, suppose you made the hole really, really, really big so that whenever you got to the green, you just added one. Well, if everybody added one when they got to the green, then putting wouldn't matter at all. Mm, right. So kind of in the limit of the biggest hole, putting, it would just take, out, take away putting as, as part of the game. Completely. And uh, the smaller the hole, the more putting matters.
0: Clayton's just out of interest. Did your playing partners that day learn some new words when you discovered that they were having a couple of large holes? What was your reaction? I can't imagine that impressed you too much.
2: No, it was, it was, a, it was a prime in Queensland, so...
0: Ah, oh, right, well, there you
2: go. <laughs> well, it was a problem on the Gold Coast even.
0: <laughs> even <laughs> which even Queensland doesn't admit to, I don't think, expect- the Gold Coast. They don't want that to be. Yeah.
2: Mind um, you, I, I, it, it was interesting how it completely changed the mentality to a 35-foot putt where rather than trying to lag it up close, you were no longer, you didn't care because it didn't matter. You just, you know, if you hit it six feet past, you still made it. So
0: importantly. It,
2: it, it, you know, it completely took away the, the, the fear of speed, really,
4: because yeah. the, the speed on long putts didn't matter.
0: What was the amateur yes, so you're trying, reaction? You're trying
4: to make it, right? Yeah. You're trying to make it from 30 feet in that case. You're not thinking two putt. You're thinking, I, I can hold this.
2: Yeah, yeah, you're trying to make it, but you're never considering three putts. Whereas I know when I putted, I always thought about, Three putting from that distance, it was like you know the the, the critical thing was to get it close. Don't hit a four feet pass and miss it. Don't three putt this. Mm. That, you know that was the way I pretty much always thought about putting.
0: The three putt, the constant companion. It never goes away yeah. once it's visited. <laughs> it That's the the fear of the three putt. on your shoulder. That's don't
1: right. This. Uh, Mark, uh, this topic of speed has come up. Now the tour. And I hate to focus too much on on the tour, but but ShotLink does, I believe, in the last few years they've been registering stint meter speeds uh, in in their data because I've asked that related to their slow play analysis uh, using ShotLink, the USGA's analysis of that, and and whether faster greens mean slower rounds and and vice versa. Most of the greens are fast now on the tour, but is is um, is that a part of, of the research, or would you like to know that uh, that information? Be able to write something that 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 uh, gets some interesting data out of green speeds as it relates to how people putt.
4: Oh, absolutely! Um, but there's a couple things there. One is uh, the PGA Tour tries to have most of the green speeds about the same from week to week, so that they're not yeah. varying that much. If they if they are varying, it's more because of weather, other factors out of out of their control. But I think it would be yeah. hugely interesting to see um, what the green speeds are at Augusta compared to the PGA yeah. Tour and to make that comparison and also make the comparison with uh, with amateur golfers. Uh, but I don't think there's enough variation in terms of uh, uh, yeah. green speeds on the PGA Tour to say too much about the pace of play there.
1: Yeah, it's just too bad. Yeah, because it, it would be fun to know. Although I, I, I know from talking to them some of their initial – research where they have the uh, USGA's just done separately they they haven't found a big difference um, but I find that hard to believe now you're a, you're a good golfer you've won a club championship um, I'm curious as you talk about all this and you've done this book, this beautiful book with all this information how,
0: How's I, your game?
1: <laughs> how do you play golf at this point or are you able to go out and are there days where you kind of do a statistical analysis and other days you just let it go and go enjoy the the birds and the butterflies and the green grass. <laughs> oh, my! Uh, my
4: playing companions give me a hard time asking me how How can you play golf when you're keeping track of, uh, you know, all my shots and all of their shots? And I've just gotten so used to it that it's it's basically second nature. Um, how do you do that? So, do you use
1: an app or do you use a
4: pen and paper? So I, it's 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 pen and paper where when you make a shot, you just put an X down uh, where where your ball is and uh, after the round, you just uh, click wherever that X was. So if you hit a tee shot and it's five yards short of this bunker on the right side of the fairway, you just make an X there or you just click on this uh, Golf Metrics computer program, and then it does all the calculations for you. So it's pretty simple to use, but you have to uh, do a little of, uh, post-round data data entry. But the advantage is you can you get this report immediately, which tells you, um, it breaks down your game into where you played well and where you played poorly and it certainly helped me to try and you know once I see oh my you know my short game has gotten much worse in the last month I'll go practice at the short game area or I'll go take a lesson and if my putting gets bad you know I'll I'll do the same I'll I'll put on the green or I'll I'll take a putting lesson and there's a lot of amateurs that I know that have never had a putting lesson or they've never had a short game lesson, and um, that that can really help help your score. And just, just having the uh, the immediate feedback of of uh, where you gained and lost shots in a round, I found to be uh, helpful. At least it slow, slowed down my uh, my getting worse as I've gotten older.
0: Mm-hmm. Of course, us amateurs mm-hmm. have also got no idea how to practice. Have we, Clates? you must have seen that time and time again. No. Amateurs no. clueless no. about what I'm going to practice.
4: Let me run another theory past you that
2: I've – it's from my observation. There's, there's a group of players. When you give them a modern driver, the, the long shaft, light shaft, big head, sort of young, youngish, sort of you know, twenty to forty year old guys who are reasonably talented, with ropey techniques, who smash it a mile when they hit it. But there's now this massive right shot. There's this huge inside open face block that goes miles to the right, and then they never find the ball. I play with these guys and I tell them, I said, you guys would all score lower if you played with hickory shafts because you would learn to hit the ball straight. You would never miss a fairway. You would hit it. You know, you would never hit the great drives you hit, but you would never lose the three balls around you lose. Does that make any sense? Or is that kind of. Oh, Because yeah, yeah, People say the modern driver is great. I say the modern driver, for, for a specific, it's been great for pros, it's been great for women, but for that kind of group of players who are strong, hit the ball a long way. I just see this massive wide shot now that I never saw with a persimmon driver.
4: Yeah, I think if you can hit it 50, 50 yards longer than before, you have the potential to hit it 50 yards further to the left or right. We had a guy who contended in our club championship one year. He could hit the ball a mile. Yeah. And the next, and the next year, when we had this, both years we had a stroke play qualifying, but... I don't think he broke 100 and uh he he's exactly the guy that you're describing that uh when he's on he can do great but uh when he's off you know you pump a couple of out of bounds and uh your score goes up really quickly so there's definitely a trade-off between distance and accuracy and if uh if you're that wild with uh with the driver like you said yeah go try a, a woodwood <laughs> or a hickory shaft and uh and get your uh, swing a little bit more under control.
0: There's a, there's a few pros practicing yeah, yeah. with the person in these days, aren't there, Clates? For that very reason.
4: Uh,
2: I'm not sure. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, Jeff obviously plays a lot with them, but um, it just seems to me that you know that new club has introduced the, the, the phenomenon of you know having that. Jeff, you would know about working on track man. A friend of mine went to a teacher. He oh, said, okay. you know, "I know
1: about blowing it right." <laughs>
2: <laughs> he said, "Your face is four degrees open, and you pass six degrees inside. That's why it's going sideways." You know, my, my it's only observation, but I'll, my guess is that thirty years ago, no one with a wooden driver had it six degrees inside and four degrees open. It was too short. It was too heavy. It was it was a smaller head. People weren't just wailing away and trying to hit it forever. And it, it, right. it's just it's fundamentally changed the way. That group of players I'm talking about see the game and play the game. It's all about let's see how far we can smash it. And of course, there's this massive, crazy shot that people hit. Mm. Which, for, as an aside, which is, as architects working on traditional old golf courses built in the suburbs, it's a nightmare to try and solve boundary problems because you can't yeah. legislate against that thing that just goes sideways right.
4: Well, one of the things that uh, I remember Dick Ruggie telling me, I don't know if this originated with him, but he was talking about the change in the the equipment. He was saying it's not necessarily that the uh, equipment makes the ball go further. It's that with the the bigger, lighter drivers, uh, the guys on the PGA Tour, the college players can swing with abandon Mm. uh, because they don't have to worry about hitting it right on the center of the face, whereas – in the older persimmon era, they would they would swing much more reserved to hit it on the on the center of the face. It's not, you know, if they wanted to swing as fast as they could, they could probably hit it just as far. Um, I'm not sure if they if I believe that, but it was another way to look at the uh, the debate on on technology that it's it's not so much the balls going further, but you can swing with abandon where you couldn't before.
0: It's fundamentally yeah. changed the professional game, hasn't it, Clayton? It's changed the game we watch as a spectacle. From, a, from one type of play to a different, it really is a, a, a slogging game. I think Foley opens your book by saying, Mark, that even with kids these days, his focus is teach them how to smash it. Once they know how to hit it as far as they can, then you can teach them to hit it straight, which is, I guess, reverse of what you would have learnt, Clates.
2: Well, but, but Nicholas learnt that way, and Palmer learnt that way. But, yeah, it's... Um, you just don't see short hitters anymore. Mm.
0: Are pretty rare. Yeah, hey.
2: You know, in, in terms of good play, hmm. they all – I mean, every kid I play with just – they all want the ball 300 yards. I mean, hmm. every single one of them just smashes it. Yeah.
0: What's well, the same. All good players are long hitters, even though not all long hitters are good players necessarily. Yeah,
4: it, yeah exactly. Distance kind of uh, – will give you the potential to score but mm. if you're you know an amateur golfer and you can't hit the ball more than 220 yards you're not going to be breaking 80 mm. and if you want to play on the pga tour if you can't hit the ball over 280 you can you can forget it mm. yeah. but just because you hit the ball over 280 doesn't mean you can play on the pga tour just because you hit the ball 240 yards doesn't mean you can become an 80 golfer or a scratch golfer so you know difference in mathematical terms between necessary and sufficient conditions you 've got to you 've got to hit it far to be able to have a chance, but that doesn 't mean uh, uh you can shoot the score that Uh, that goes without distance.
0: Goggin put it beautifully, didn't he, Clayton? Talent is only the entry fee. (laughs) It doesn't get the job done. It gets you in the game, but it doesn't uh, take you there. I wanted to finish up with Mark because we really could go on all day, as we say with all of our guests, but it does tend to happen. I was just saying to the guys before we got you on the phone this morning, there's kind of two ways to look at golf. There's the artist and the engineer, and it's always, I suspect, been that way. Are you the guy who is deconstructing the Mona Lisa, and are you ashamed of yourself for doing that?
4: obviously i'm 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 not i think th- this allows you to see the beauty in these golf shots that you're talking about so when somebody has this you know this great shot that turns the tide in, in a tournament i think it allows you to appreciate how good these golfers are when somebody sinks uh like in the uh the the women's tournament i think in um uh, that Singapore. was Paul Cremer. Yeah, yeah. Yep, yep. yeah, you know, sink a seventy-five-foot eagle putt to win the tournament. I think it gives you that much more appreciation for how good a shot or how good a putt it was. So I think it adds to the uh, to the beauty and the understanding. Yeah. Hmm.
0: I'm not necessarily convinced, but I do appreciate you. Uh, your changes. And I, it, it is a fascinating book. If you're interested in golf, it's a fascinating book, whether you're either for or against the notion of technology and distances and all those other things. It really is interesting to see uh, how the game works. Mark, it's been fabulous to, to have you along. Thank you for taking some time. I
4: appreciate it, Rod, Jeff, Michael. It was a pleasure. That was terrific. Yeah, yeah thank you, Mark.
0: Indeed. And thank you to you also, Shaq, over there in the States. It's been great to have you on, on today as well. Thank you, and always good to get your insights, Clates. And uh, we look forward to seeing you on the bag for suo once she starts cashing checks. That'd be nice, wouldn't
2: it? Be nice, right? Yep.
0: It wouldn't, and it won't be too long, I suspect, to as you say, a fabulous player. And that wraps it up for State of the Game today. Great to have you aboard. Hope you enjoyed it. Looking forward to your company again next time on State of the Game. Probably in a couple of weeks' time. We're just hunting down a guest as we speak, so that'll be a couple of weeks here on State of the Game. State of the Game is a Talk and Golf production. Theme music, Writer's Retreat, provided by Lloyd Cole. Visit www.lloydcole.com for more information. For more golf podcasts, log on to www.talkinggolf.com.